Let Me Tell You a Story, Podcast 37. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Never mind it is a how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We apologize for the long break between, between podcasts. While on vacation in California, we caught a respiratory bug. And it's taken us a while to get our voices back. But now we can talk without coughing, which I'm sure you'll appreciate. We'll begin this podcast with Steve reading from Winds of Wyoming, Chapter 7. Kate arrived in the ranch kitchen two minutes before her starting time. What in tarnation? Cyrus stopped what he was doing to stare. You run into a fence post? She glared at him. I tripped. Better take it easy today. He motioned to Fletcher, who stood at the sink filling a large coffee pot with water. We can handle breakfast. Sure, and then he'd tell everyone what a slacker she was. I'm scheduled to work this morning and quite capable of doing whatever is asked of me. So it's yourself. He pointed to a rack of eggs on the counter. How about cracking those eggs into that bowl? Her palms burned with each eggshell she broke, but she kept at it. Later, as she whisked cream into the eggs, she watched employees gather in the rustic dining room. She didn't know much about ranch hands, but these hardy-looking men in plaid shirts and worn Levi's looked the part. Their hat-creased hair, white foreheads, tanned faces, and scuffed boots spoke of physical labor and life in the outdoors. The air held a hint of hay and soap. Kate saw two girls about high school age talking in the corner, the only females she'd seen other than Laura. No wonder Cyrus resented her. She scanned the man again. Did Mike eat breakfast at home or in the dining hall? She felt a flush climb up her neck. Not that it mattered. Soon she was helping Cyrus arrange steaming platters of scrambled eggs, sausage patties, and fresh-from-the-oven biscuits on the serving window ledge. Any of the other staff members from out of town? He leaned across the ledge and called into the dining room. Come and get it, he nodded to Kate. Yeah, a couple of them. One guy from the Steamboat Springs College and another from the university in Laramie. Most all the hands live nearby, except for the occasional drifter Mrs. D hires. After they finished serving the crew, Cyrus and Fletcher joined the others in the dining room where the morning chatter was subdued but congenial. Kate tottered after them, her new jeans chafing her knees through the gauze she'd taped over her wounds. She found the girls and carefully lowered herself into a chair across from them. Hi, the blonde spoke first. Are you a college student? Kate smiled and felt her bottom lip split again. I just graduated. She dabbed the lip with her napkin. I'm Bethany. She had hazel eyes and a splash of freckles across her nose. And this is Trisha. We'll be juniors next year. Nice to meet you both. My name is Kate. She didn't offer her sore hands for a handshake. Instead, she reached for the butter. 
I was glad to see other feminine faces this morning. Trisha laughed. You get used to being a minority. She had dark brown eyes and hair. We were like the only two girls last summer, but the guys were all nice, even Cyrus. He's not as mean as he sounds. That's what you think, honey. Kate held her knife between her finger and her thumb to butter the biscuit. The girl was too young to be labeled an overeducated husband hunter. Bethany leaned close. I kind of like it when Cyrus gets mad. Mrs. Duncan doesn't allow swearing, so he makes up funny words. He does use colorful language. And about being the only girls, we have tons of female guests. She glanced at Tricia. They both giggled. Yeah, single women adore. Tricia raised her hands to her shoulders and wiggled them back and forth. I mean, like, adore cowboys. Well, I'm single and I don't adore cowboys. Seeing the startled looks on the girls' faces, Kate realized how prickly she sounded. Sorry, I just don't want people to think that's why I came to this ranch. Bethany looked at Kate's shirt. You're not like them. Their blouses are unbuttoned way low, and their Levi's are so tight they can barely throw their legs over a saddle. They wear tons of makeup and jewelry. They, Kate chuckled, I get the point. Trisha added her two bits. Their Western outfits are always brand new, plus they wear hats with neck straps. Kate felt her face warming as she thought of her recently purchased clothing. Shopping for something to replace Prison Orange had been an exciting adventure for her and Amy. At least her hat didn't tie under her chin. Trisha reached for her juice. If you don't mind me asking, what happened to your face? It must hurt. Kate wrinkled her nose. She should have known there'd be questions. I tripped on the path last night. She showed them her palms. I'm sore, but nothing's broken. As the girls chattered, Kate sensed the curious glances of the men at nearby tables. How to make a great first impression. Not only was she the odd duck from the East Coast, she looked like she'd ridden a motorcycle through a sandstorm. Trisha gave her an overview of life at the ranch. Everybody pitches in and does whatever needs to be done. Right, Bethany? Yeah, we're assigned certain duties for the day, but if there's a big trail ride coming up and the Wranglers need help, we all settle horses and help the guests mount. Or if we get behind on cabin cleaning, the entire crew cleans cabins. Trisha nodded. Mrs. D says we're a team. It won't take you long to, to get the hang of it. I hope I catch on fast, Kate set her fork on her plate. Ranching is all new to me. You'll do fine. It was all new to us last year. Bethany buttered a second biscuit. We were town girls who didn't know a thing about ranching, but we learned, learned fast, didn't we, Trish? Trisha, who was staring at the dining room entrance, didn't respond. The room quieted, and others turned toward the doorway. Can you believe it, Beth? Trisha lowered her voice to a whisper. They must have, like, let him out early. Kate studied the dark-haired young man. Head down, he shuffled toward the serving window. He appeared to be Hispanic, maybe 16 years old, of medium to slight build. Similar to the others, he was dressed in jeans, boots, and a long sleeve work shirt. He turned to the girls. Is he an employee? Uh, she turned to the girls. Is he an employee? Mrs. D is such a softy. Bethany's voice was barely above a murmur. She must have hired him again. 
Manuel worked here last summer until he was sent to reform school, that is. She scraped her chair back. We'll tell you about him later. Trisha stood. We'd better get busy. We're supposed to clean stalls this morning. The girls took their dishes to the kitchen and left. The men in the room began to converse again in low tones. Kate drank her coffee, which was stronger than what she was used to, but maybe it would help her stay awake after so few hours of sleep. She watched Manuel find a seat at the far end of a mostly empty table. Whatever he did, it couldn't be any worse than anything she'd done, and his remorse was obvious. After a few years in the pen, it was easy to tell the difference between those who were sorry for their wrongdoing and those who were not, the Jerry Ramseys of the world. She thought about the events of the previous evening. After Mike opened the bathroom door and nailed boards across the window, she'd washed her wounds and applied the first aid cream his mom sent over. She smiled. The memory of Mike's touch and his earnest concern for her well-being made her insides do somersaults. But... She sighed. He'd been kind last night. Nothing more, nothing less. Plus, he was a man, and she had yet to meet a man she could trust, other than her dad and Uncle Dean. It was her uncle's hunting knife she'd placed under her pillow last night, fully aware she hadn't seen the last of her former lover. Kate stood, picked up her dishes, and carried them to the kitchen, where she placed them in a basin filled with soapy water, and started toward the back door. Where in the blazes do you think you're going? She swiveled to face Cyrus, who blocked the opening between the kitchen and the dining room. To the office. You told me I was supposed to see Mrs. Duncan after breakfast. Aren't you forgetting something? Like what? Her tone was defiant, and she knew it. Washing the dishes. She hesitated. I didn't realize I was... Cyrus hooked his thumbs into his belt loops and raised both crumpled eyebrows. As they say... Men may work from sun to sun, but women's work is never done. Kate clenched her fist. She'd had enough of the sarcastic old man. She stepped forward toward him just as a young cowboy peeked in the serving window. Cyrus Moore, you ornery old codger. You know Mrs. D says there's no such thing as women's work or men's work around here. And those who help fix a meal stay to do the cleanup afterwards. He grinned at Kate. In case no one told you, kitchen duty includes the cleanup afterward. Just pulling her leg, Cyrus stomped past Kate on his way to the sink, a smirk tugging at his creased cheeks. Gotcha. Kate grabbed an apron. What an ornery old man. At what point had she forgotten the people outside penitentiary walls could be just as disgusting as those on the inside? And why had she expected Wyoming men to be different than Pennsylvania men? The ranch office was located off the hallway between the lobby and the Duncan's living quarters. Hi, Kate. Laura rose to her feet. Oh, my goodness. Mike told me you fell, but I didn't realize. How do you feel? Okay, just a little sore. If you say so. Laura didn't sound convinced. Let me know if you need something. Aspirin, time off, anything. She gestured toward a man seated in a wheelchair at a desk near the back of the room. Coach? Come meet Kate Nielsen. The brawny man sported a salt-and-pepper buzz cut and a black T-shirt with the words Copperville High School Cougars emblazoned in gold across the front. 
The muscles in his forearms rippled as he spun his chair toward them. Welcome. His handshake was painfully firm. We're glad to have you on the team. His boyish grin convinced her. He meant his words. Thank you. Do I call you coach or... My name is Rob Murphy, but... Laura spoke for him. But everyone calls him coach. He heads up the sports at Copperville's elementary, middle, and high schools. So you coach and work here? Laura placed her hands on his shoulder. Coach also teaches business classes at the high school. Knowing it would be tough this first summer without Dan, he offered to come in a couple days a week to help us with the bookkeeping. She paused. I am more grateful than words can express. He shrugged, looking embarrassed. Glad to help. He turned to Kate. You must have taken quite a tumble. I learned my first lesson about mountain living. Carry a flashlight at night. He chuckled. I know what you mean. I have a flashlight in the glove compartment of my car. But the last time I needed it, the batteries were dead. Better add extra batteries to your list. Thanks, I remember that. He swung his chair toward a third desk. This will be your computer. I've got you set up on our network. Laura returned to her work. Kate followed Coach and sat at the desk, savoring the moment. Her own desk, her own computer, a real job on the outside. He clicked on the screen. Your email account address is kateN at wpinesranch.org. He turned to face her. My niece's name is Caitlin Newport, but I call her Katie N. Maybe that's what I'll call you, too. Kate smiled. She hadn't had a nickname, well, a nice one, since her dad called her Joybug years ago. Okay by me, he grinned. What do you want to use for network and email passwords? How many letters do I need? She heard the lobby screen door squeak open and slam shut, followed by the sound of footsteps tapping down the hallway toward the office. A combination of at least six alpha letters and numeric characters. I might as well make them easy to remember. How about PA12345 for the network and WY54321 for email? Oops, you shouldn't have told me. His eyes twinkled. This is a highly secure operation. Laura laughed. That will be the day. Tara Hughes stuck her head into the room. Well, well, well. What a cozy little crew. She posed in the doorway, one hand high on the doorframe and the other on her hip, her perfume wafting into the room. She winked at Coach. Changing careers? Of course not, Laura folded her arms. He's just helping us out for the summer. She eyed Tara's lime green halter top, short navy shorts and high-heeled sandals. You look ready for summer, though it seems a bit cool for... No use hiding this cute little package, is there? Laura's nostrils flared and she took a deep breath before motioning toward Kate. Tara, I'd like you to meet... Engulfed by Tara's oppressive flowery fragrance, Kate sneezed. Coach and Laura echoed a bless you, but Tara ignored the sneeze and dismissed the introduction with a don't bother wave. We already met down at Grandma's. She looked Kate up and down. You must have lost the fight. So, Tara, Coach sounded impatient, what can we do for you today? She glanced at his useless legs. You can't do anything for me. He flipped his chair around and reached for the keyboard. Now, where were we? 
Kate heard Laura repeat the question. Tara answered in an unnecessarily loud voice, I'm looking for Mikey. Is he around today or is he with those silly buffalo? Kate looked over in time to see Laura square her shoulders. He doesn't leave a copy of his schedule with us. Is he expecting you? He likes for me to drop by the ranch when he can't make it to town. She lowered her false eyelashes. So he gets to see me. Oh, really? Laura sat back in her chair. He hadn't mentioned you dropping by. Why would he? Tara placed her hands on her waist. As you said, he doesn't give you a copy of his schedule. Laura did not respond. Instead, she placed her hands on her desk, intertwined her fingers, and silently tapped her forefingers together. Tara flashed a coral lipstick smile. I need to go find a high spot where I can get cell phone reception. Clients are calling. She pointed at Kate with her cell phone. I'll see you and your jailbird friend around town. Kate gaped at her. Oh, don't act so innocent. You can't possibly be surprised the cops threw your lover boy in jail last night. With an extra swing of her barely covered hips, Tara twirled and sauntered away, butterfly tattoos prancing up her bare brown back. Not knowing what to say, Kate closed her mouth. The moment the lobby screen door slammed shut, Laura released a long sigh. Tara Hughes has always been a pain in the you-know-what A very obvious you-know-what today, I might add. I try to remember she's an only child whose mother died when she was young. She can't help it that her father spoiled her. Coach shook his head. That's no excuse for her outrageous behavior. One of these days, her fool mouth will dig a hole so deep. His voice trailed off as he turned back to the computer. He explained the ranch's network, the guest registration program, and the programs and databases Kate would use for her marketing work. After he finished, Laura asked Kate to help her prepare cabins for the guests. Together, they loaded cleaning supplies into an antler-topped golf cart and puttered toward the cabins. They'd barely gotten inside the door of the first cabin when Laura put her hand on Kate's arm. Sorry to yank you out of the office like that, but Mike told me about the break-in. I wish you'd let him call the sheriff. Kate started to respond, but Laura lifted a finger. I understand you were tired and in pain. However, if he comes around again, you have to promise me you'll call for help. I promise. And I promise to pray for for your safety every night. Thank you. That's really kind of you. Laura began to unwind the vacuum cleaner cord. My pleasure. Kate felt a warm glow unfurl in her heart. Besides Aunt Mary and Amy... Two more women had promised to pray for her, or keep her in their prunes, to quote Dimple Forbes. She bit her lip to contain the giggle that threatened to erupt. Another thing, Laura plugged the cord into a wall outlet. Do you know who Tara was talking about? Is the man in jail the guy who broke into your cabin last night? Kate shrugged. How would she know about what happened here last night? And how does she know who's in jail? Laura grimaced. You'd be surprised what that woman knows. She has a way of digging up news, especially bad news, then broadcasting it near and far. Kate swallowed. Please, God, don't let Tara find out about my time at Patterson. We've come to the end of my Aunt Hazel's account of my grandparents' homesteading days in Wyoming.
In podcast 36, we recounted the story of my grandpa's death. I'll start with the final paragraph from that section and then conclude by reading about my grandma's final years. Mary turned to go back down the hill to the house. This chapter of her life was finished. Ralph was gone, but her children still needed her. It was impossible for her to live on the farm alone, so she sold the place, having only a few dollars left, after paying the mortgage and other bills. Mary moved into an apartment in Wheatland and took a job staying nights with an elderly, ill lady. Life was so different, the adjustment was hard, and she was terribly lonely. Later, she found a five-room house near Wheatland's shopping area, a home she came to love and where she lived for over 20 years. She also took a part-time job as a caretaker of a ladies' rest lounge in downtown Wheatland where women and children could relax during shopping trips. This job was only for a short time, but Mary enjoyed it very much. She had many friends and kept an interest in a variety of things, such as quilting, cooking, flowers, especially violets, and different types of art and handcrafts. On a side note, I remember my grandma having a really big loom in her spare bedroom. And if I remember correctly, that's where she made her rugs. So back to the story. Mary's main interest was her children and grandchildren, and it seemed she was happiest when they were visiting her. Perhaps it was because she was raised without her mother that Mary was not one to show affection. But her eagerness to have her family near and her many years of hard work and sacrifice for them showed that her love and affection were deep and undeniable. It became a family tradition to have a reunion at Thanksgiving each year, or maybe on July 4th. This is a highlight of the year for Mary, and she planned it for weeks ahead. In between reunions, she had periods of loneliness when memories of the past filled her mind. She wrote many letters and made many telephone calls in an effort to keep the family in touch and united. Mary often said, I hope I never live to see one of my children die. I don't think I could bear it. However, this was not to be, for Helen became ill and after seven years of battling cancer, passed away in 1977. Helen's long illness and death were very difficult for Mary, and the family could see her health was also failing. She had strokes quite often, some serious enough to require hospitalization. She discovered a lump in her breast but did not tell the doctor for several months. Finally, because the symptoms were similar to Helen's, she decided she should have it checked. Mary, who had never been to a hospital to deliver her babies or have any type of surgery, underwent a radical mastectomy and before the year was out, a colostomy. She never fully recovered from the last surgery, but she was allowed to go home and with the help of her family stayed a week before returning to the hospital. During her illness, she was always hopeful that she would recover. She had great faith in her doctor and trusted him completely. One day, one of her last days, she told her daughter, 
It seems like I can almost reach out and be where your dad and Helen are. Then I think of the rest of you, and I know I shouldn't go yet. Mary passed away at Platte County Hospital in Wheatland, Wyoming on March 4, 1978, at the age of 86. She was buried beside Ralph in the Wheatland Cemetery. Her grandsons were her pallbearers, and all her children were home for the funeral. Another chapter of her life had ended. At the time of her death, Mary's grandchildren numbered 23 and her great-grandchildren 34. It is for her descendants that this story was written. And with them, a new chapter begins. Thank you, Aunt Hazel, for this great summary of my grandparents' history. Here's a little something to laugh about from Mikey's Funnies, mikeysfunnies.com. A Texas rancher was visiting an Iowa farm. The farmer was very proud of his 200 acres of rich, productive land. Is this your whole farm? The Texan asked. Why, back in Texas, I get in my car at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I drive and drive all day. At dusk, I am just reaching the end of my ranch. The Iowa farmer thought for a minute and said, Yeah, I used to have a car like that, too. All right, and then another really dumb one, really, this is. It's, um, what did the lawyer name his daughter? Sue! <laughs> this is an essay written by our friend uh, from California, Patricia Watkins. She titled it, A Great Aunt. I spent most of my growing up years living in what was called the Big House, because it was the biggest house in our small California town of Cardiff-by-the-Sea. The big house was a white, two-story clapboard structure with enormous windows. It sat a little way up a hill, held in place by a tall, curving cement retaining wall, broken only by two ornate wrought-iron gates festooned with roses. The gates announced a long flight of cement stairs that led to the front lawn and another set of stairs that led up to the front door. The house is wrapped with wide-covered porches on three sides. Views from the west and south-facing porches ended at the mesmerizing horizon line of the Pacific Ocean. My first memory of the big house is a visit with my aunt on a hot summer's day. Sitting on a cushy glider swing on the front porch, we looked out over the ocean and took turns petting the chubby calico cat who sat between us. Aunt Laura had a quiet, natural way of making others feel comfortable. Her manner was a soft, superbed white hair, which she wore in wisps around her circular face. Her soft eyes caressed the faces of those she fixed her steady gaze on. She had a short, slightly rounded figure reminiscent of a shapely youth, and she carried herself with such dignity that she appeared to be much taller than she actually was. Her warm arms, always ready with a hug, were richly bronzed from the hours she spent out of doors. My aunt was first and foremost an avid gardener. Under her care, the terrace property of the big house was heavily planted with an astonishing variety of fruit trees and rare tropical plants. 
Her orchard contained orange, lemon, tangerine, grapefruit, apple, plum, peach, apricot, pepper, and banana trees. She even successfully transplanted cuttings of a rare, all-black, bird-of-paradise plant from the San Luis Rey mission into the garden outside her kitchen. Several years after her husband, my great-uncle Jay, died, she decided that the big house and yard were too much for her to take care of alone. She had a small house built farther up the hill on a lot facing the street behind. Saying goodbye to the big house was heart-wrenching, but she chose to focus on planting the grounds of her new home and on making a new life for herself. She surrounded her new home with succulent jade plant gardens, red blossom ginger, hanging purple wisteria, a profusion of geraniums in every available color, roses, and a night-blooming cactus that totally covered her large lath house. The new owners of the big house were nice enough, but they had never lived in a house with floors, much less electricity. Mostly out of ignorance, they let both the property and the home go to ruin. To see her beloved orchards wither and die below her on the hill, her lovely gardens become chaotic and overgrown, and the special house slide into disrepair right before her eyes broke my aunt's heart anew on a daily basis. Two years later, when the house came up for sale again, she prevailed upon my parents to buy the property, and with her help, shoulder the immense task of reclaiming it. Aunt Laura had spent twelve years creating and nurturing the yard and gardens of the big house, but in two short years it had been desecrated. A small band of green card workers was hired to wield machetes to clear the orchards of the four-foot tall grass and weeds that had overtaken most of the property. During that same two-year period, the garbage had never been taken out of the house, but had been left to rot on the kitchen counters. Our family spent months eating out of a makeshift kitchen set up in the dining room while my parents literally shoveled out the kitchen and sanitized it. To help us through this nightmare, Aunt Laura fixed us dinner at her house several times a week. The grounds responded to the renewed care and attention by putting on a show of appreciation the next spring. The newly fertilized fruit trees began to bear fruit again. The myriad of flowers, now able to get enough sun, began to bloom again. The grass that was now regularly watered greened up until the backyard looked like a park, featuring an all-you-can-eat fruit smorgasbord. Aunt Laura spent a lot of time smiling to herself and humming like a contented cat that spring. Her garden had been restored. This was not the first time my aunt had prevailed against heavy odds. When Prohibition was instituted, she and my uncle owned a nightclub in La Cunada, California. In order to maintain the business, they found it necessary to change their venue slightly. Ford's Castle Country Club became a dinner house slash cabaret with fine dining, the best in entertainment, and mixers on the house, BYOB. During the Depression, Aunt Laura and Uncle Jay suffered heavy financial losses and retreated to a piece of rural property in eastern San Diego County to regroup. There they worked long days on the land to make a living. By raising every imaginable fruit and vegetable and then canning it, juicing it, preserving it, jamming it, and transporting it to the wealthy beach town of La Jolla to sell, they survived the Depression years. Aunt Laura would be the first to tell you that what held her steady and gave her the strength to persevere was her strong faith in God. Even when things looked particularly bleak, 
She was sure of his love for her and never doubted that his perfect plan was being worked out in her life. Because she felt his presence in the events of her daily life, she walked every day in an enviable peace and calm. She was able, like the Apostle Paul, to be fully content, whether in times of plenty or times of want. After she was widowed, the small Methodist church in our town became her extended family. She was a regular and willing worker at Vacation Bible School and his institution at the church's yearly bakes and rubbish sales, a quality seamstress at weekly quilting bees, and an avid student in adult Sunday school. Years later, when a broken hip meant moving to a convalescent home, her faith moved with her. Her inner peace blessed all who worked there, as well as those who visited her. Aunt Laura stayed young, well into her 80s, because she was always willing to learn something new. In her late 60s, she took up oil painting with a gusto that filled her descendants' homes with paintings of neighboring missions, the surrounding countryside, and nearby deserts. If you visited on painting day, her living room smelled of turpentine and oil paints. If you were lucky enough to be invited to go out on location with her painting group, you would see her purse her lips as she struggled to get it just right. She and her painting cronies would have made a good study in and of themselves. At the agreed-upon site, they spilled out of their vehicles in all directions, like so many ants, in a hurry to stake out the perfect spot for the best angle. After milling around far in the field, they invariably regrouped and sat down in a tight clump. Next, they carefully set out all their art supplies and took up their pallets. Each one, perched on a canvas camping stool, wore a large-brimmed, glare-reducing hat and chattered away as she painted. Aunt Laura's two-story knotty pine living room wall became the gallery for her artwork. Her group's work was displayed at the local bank, and each artist was chest-popping proud of having obtained celebrity status. By the standards of our small town, they actually had. The thing that made Aunt Laura so special to me was that she was my confidant and mentor. After we moved into the big house below her, my father laid a paving stone pathway up the hill, connecting the two houses. Each day after school, I walked the half-block home, dropped my books on the kitchen table, stepped past my younger brother in front of the TV, and headed up the hill to Aunt Laura's. I could depend on her to give me her undivided attention and support as I related the events of the day. She always seasoned her advice with patience and cookies, a great combination. As I settled in on a spindly antique kitchen chair, she would busy herself around the kitchen, sometimes washing dishes sometimes sweeping, sometimes finely slicing homemade noodles for soup. While I nibbled my snack, she would ask, What happened in school today? Well, today I got to take the fish out of the teacher's tank and clean the tank all by myself. The rocks were so cool and slippery in my fingers, and the fish wiggling in the net made my stomach tickle. Good for you. You're a great helper. Your teacher's lucky to have you in her class, encouraged Aunt Laura. Today, we learned square dancing, and my teacher made the shortest boy in our class my partner for the whole week. I moaned. You never mind, and just concentrate on having fun, Aunt Laura counseled, knowing that full well I was the tallest girl in the class. Saturday's our school carnival, and I'm going to enter the cookie-baking contest, I confided. I'll bet you will win, she said with a grin. And I did. Some days our vocalizing reached such a pitch that her canary felt obligated to join in, filling the kitchen with exuberant musical notes to match our chatter and laughter. In our family, you worked to get the extra things you wanted. 
Aunt Laura helped me raise funds for trips and special purchases by allowing me to sell the fruit from her trees. I had to pick it, pack it, deliver it, and collect for it. The most marketable fruit came off a stately old apricot tree that was so big she actually allowed me to climb it in order to reach the fruit. In those days, a lug of fresh-picked, tree-ripened, juicy apricots went for $3. I fondly remember the feeling of warm dirt and rough bark on my bare feet, mingled with the feeling of success as I amassed my fortune picking apricots. Quality produce had seen my aunt through lean times in the Depression, and with her help, it saw me through my elementary school entrepreneurial days. To Aunt Laura, turning 16 was a big deal, a rite of passage, so to speak. She felt it was her duty and privilege to confer upon me a special gift commemorating the suspicious occasion. The week before my birthday, she escorted me to the tiny shop of our small-town jeweler. Her wish was that I have a ring. Together we picked out a deep blue stone and it had and had it mounted in a gold setting. As a widow who'd been living on Social Security for many years, this special ring probably cost her many months of sacrifice, a price she was happy to pay and never once mentioned. Although the stone has had to be replaced several times, I still wear the same ring. It helps me remember who I am, the lessons I learned from my aunt, and how much she loved me. By lineage, Aunt Laura was my paternal grandfather's sister, my great-aunt on my dad's side. By lifestyle and legacy, she truly was a great-aunt. This is called Updraft by Rebecca Howell. Our pastor recently told a story of sitting by a lake watching a seagull circling over the water. The bird started in the middle and flew in a wider and wider circle until it was circling the whole lake. Suddenly, an updraft lifted the bird to another level, and unsettled, it began circling small in the center again. Just as before, the bird settled into its new elevation, and the circles became smoother and larger until it had mastered the pattern once again. This happened several times, and each time the bird was lifted by an updraft, it was by no effort of its own that it rose to a higher level. Adjustments had to be made, and the pattern became smooth and controlled once again. This is how God works with us. As we circle around and around on our level of experience, God, in His timing, by no effort of our own, suddenly sends an updraft to lift us to a new level. It can be unsettling at first, and we must take the time to focus on our balance and get our flight pattern back under control. We may be insecure or frightened at first. We may feel pushed and want to retreat. Yet the currents are too strong because it is God's wind beneath our wings. And as we are faithful to keep on flying, patiently doing what we know to do, we will even out, relax, and settle into a smooth pattern again. Without question, there will certainly be another place along the route where a new updraft will naturally lift us to yet a higher plane. And each time we lean into His will, our faith will become stronger. And every time we allow ourselves to rest in His strength, our trust will grow. God knows what we need, when we need it, how much we can handle at a time, and how long before we are ready for another updraft. He knows the strength of our wings and of our hearts, and he watches us intently, caring about the details of every level of our lives and waiting patiently until we are ready to go higher. 
we can trust Him. His ways are perfect, and He will never let us flounder or fail. We just need to keep flying and ride on the currents of His grace. And we'll end with one I wrote. I called it Yield. If you've ever come to Wyoming, you probably noticed the wind. Most people do. Only visitors from Siberia seem to acclimatize. Our car was being severely buffeted while we were driving down the highway. In Wyoming, days themselves can seem to blow away, even those that are clear and sunny. It was all I could do to keep our vehicle in the slow lane, or in any lane for that matter. The wind continuously attempted to send us off the road. Then we saw a most unusual sight. Now I'm aware of traffic signs, stop, yield, slow. Those are the ones you see every day. But what I saw that day was different. It was as if a bird was waiting in midair to cross to the other side. Mind you, it was not a chicken. <laughs> the bird, perpendicular to us, was flapping its wings, aimed as normal, focused ahead, but not making any headway. It was as if there was a stop or yield sign at the edge of the highway and 10 feet high, and the bird was waiting for us to pass. I watched it in the mirror as far as I could see, and it wasn't able to combat the headwind. Birds know how to fly and they seemed to be quite adept at the skill. Still, we saw one that couldn't move forward, but it didn't stop trying. Do you feel like that sometimes? You try and try to get something done, maybe for weeks or months, but you simply cannot conquer the task? You're flying against the wind, but like the bird, keep trying. That'll wrap it up for this time. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckylyles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.